hi and welcome to Om Philosophers Liv och Tankar, a pod where we discuss philosophy with current philosophers. I'm Fredrik Eriksson, liaison librarian in philosophy here at Lund University, and by my side, as per usual, I have... Um, Matti Jansson, senior lecturer in theoretical philosophy at Lund University, and today's special guest is Richard Warner, who is professor in the law department at Chicago Kent College of Law, and he was previously professor, uh, assistant professor of philosophy at the University of Southern California and the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome to the podcast, Richard. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. So since this is an episode about uh, the philosopher Paul Grice, we wonder who was Paul Grice and what was your relationship with him? Okay. Uh- I'll, I'll answer the relationship question first because that's the much easier one and that will lead into who was Paul Grice, which I suppose I, I'll start with some anecdotes, but how, how I got to know Paul, uh, I, was, I went to University of California at Berkeley as a graduate student in English literature before I decided to move over to philosophy and one of the first courses graduate course, the first graduate course I took was from Paul Grice. And, uh, and that's when I, I wrote a paper uh, saying that he was wrong about some things in uh, his Foundations of the Language article on utter, the one he and I could never remember the title of, right? This long thing, utter sentence meaning, utter type meaning something. Paul said, I can never remember the title. Uh, and, uh, and he liked it. Uh, he liked it. And that was That was the beginning of our, our relationship, which was fortunate because I was a graduate student in English literature, now doing coursework only, right? Not admitted to the PhD program. Paul was the PhD, Paul was the admissions committee. He called me on my phone one relatively late at night and said, well, I read your paper and, and there won't be a little any problem about that little chit you need. That was my admission to graduate school. Uh, but, uh, but, We worked together. I, I took courses from him, and and as we both got older, we became friends, and uh, we worked. Uh, we talked philosophy a good deal. Played an enormous amount of chess and drank a fair amount of wine together. But uh, but he and we probably worked most closely together on the third Keras lecture on 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 freedom, which leads me to who Paul was. Right and that. We worked for we worked on that over a week, and I was in law school and at University of Southern California by then, and I drove up for the weekend, and we worked together on that uh, morning until the until uh, late in the afternoon when we'd knocked off to to play chess and drink sherry, and then we'd go to work after dinner. That went on for uh, Friday, Friday, Saturday. Uh, Sunday, I'm driving back Monday. Uh, Sunday night, I tell Paul, I, Paul, I've got to go to bed. I'm just exhausted. Paul says, I think I'll stay up a bit. He stayed up a good part of the night, writing, writing the paper in his head, right? I had notes and we had tape recordings, writing the paper in his head, came down Sunday, came down Monday morning after breakfast of leftover coffee and barely cooked bacon, right? And bread fire fried in the bacon toast he sat down and dictated the paper into the into the uh, tape machine one of the most impressive intellectual performances i've seen right uh, 
because just the day before, he got his house up in Berkeley had a balcony that overlooked the that overlooked the bay from the Berkeley side. And Paul, in a particularly difficult spot, Paul gets up, not a word, walks out onto the balcony, not a word. I thought, well, I better go after him. And I find him on the balcony with his head in his hands. If you can see like this, and he looks up, but just like that, says, it's all a terrible muddle, isn't it? And for those who said, I, there was a problem. I thought of a solution that I thought was not particularly defensible. Paul let it go and we moved on. <laughs> but but the but the, the the when you asked me what he was, the first thing that two two things recurred to me. When the immense passion for philosophy, right? Uh, it, it's a much sadder memory, but he was dying, and I visited him. And I visited him, and he was more or less bedridden. And what he wanted to talk about was philosophy, right? And, and uh, it, it, the, uh, the, and he, he was a, there was passion in all aspects of his life, but the passion for philosophy, the intellectual fire, was just amazing. And uh, you can everybody who's ever seen Paul mentions it in his piercing blue eyes. You can see the piercing blue eyes come out. Gave him, you know, he was tremendously attractive in that way. He, men and women, just like, you know, one could, Paul had a magnetic attraction in that way. Uh, and, uh, but that's one thing. And the other thing is incredibly thrifty. It, Paul was not lacking for money, but this was very early on. I think I, the first time I was a teaching assistant at University of California, they had a, a conference down in, uh, uh, down near Big Sur in California. And so, so Paul and some of the graduate students drove down in Paul's ancient Volvo, not you know, one of the one of the ones with the big curved back, right? It drive down in this ancient Volvo. And it and it it just stopped halfway down because the throttle linkage had broken. Right? The 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 throttle it wasn't you know, computerized guy. There's a you know a chain that can it must have happened before because Paul Turner goes, anybody got a safety pin? And and so the old safety pin must have broken. So they got out, fixed it, said, well, hope we make it, and off we go. Right? They never gotten it fixed. That and that's why we drank the left, no reason to make new coffee. We drank the leftover coffee that sat in that old coffee pot all night. But just a an immensely charming man, extremely talented piano player, although he didn't stop that by the time. Uh, I got to know him, but he, he was quite competent with Chopin, I hear, and a, a very accomplished chess player, right? so, and a, a man with a passion for players' unfiltered cigarettes, right? he, which, he, which, he, which he, he, yeah, we smoked, we drank, we ate, we did, and did philosophy all with the same intense passion, and, but as you know from his work, he was enormously gifted at inventive conceptual analysis. And I, let me add one more thought. So that made him, to keep being Paul's student was pretty much, you present, uh, I remember this early on when I was in the tutorial with him, you present your idea, Paul thinks a little bit and tells you what you missed. Right. <laughs> but it was good. If you kept going, it was good. Uh, 
So, oh, but I will stop there. I mean, in some way, I could you could go on and on with stories about Paul. But it, so, so just to clarify for our listeners for when this is. So, so he passed in eighty eight. 86. Uh, and, and when did you first meet him? What, 1969. 1969. Yeah, 1969. And then I went, yeah, Paul taught. So, oh, so I would go, we go to a seminar. And I should have, so go to Paul's seminar was that he would teach from 5 to 7, at you know, 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. And, and it, it typically when I was going, so you'd go, uh, Michael Frieda, uh, Stephen Shifford, George Myra, George Myra Hans Luga uh, would typically attend, and and most of us would then go out to dinner after the after the seminar. And so, by by the you know after a little after <clears throat> yeah after enough seminars and work with Paul, I got to wait. I was one of the graduate students that got to go along. So it was quite it was quite a the that period in the in the seventies was quite a quite a great intellectual period at Berkeley with all those people together. Hmm. Michael Freda spoke unfiltered Gawas, George Marrow chain smoked camels, and Paul spoke players. And so by the end of the seminar, right, it's not an exaggeration. There was a blue cloud hovering over the ceiling. So. <laughs> Um, so, so for, for those of our listeners who, who don't know anything about Paul Grice, what sort of, what would you describe as his main accomplishments as a philosopher? Uh, I think the, the, when the world looks at, at Paul Grice, the, the thing you would see, <clears throat> his work on meaning, his work on meaning and implicature is what every, that's, I think the first thing that anybody looking from the outside would think of. And that is still, you know, flourishing in the pragmatics field. Right. Uh, they, they, in a great deal of activity, a great deal of activity there. Uh, the, the distinction Paul made between what's said and what is implicated or meant mm. has, has a tremendous life, of, a tremendous life of its own. And, and, uh, and so, and his work on, his work on speaker meaning right, certainly has in, enduring enduring value for me. Uh, since right I, when I at sixty nine, right that work was pretty much in Paul's eyes completed. Uh, and uh, so, but there was a good deal of work about reasoning, which led to the book Aspects of Reason, right, which. Which I eventually edited for Paul after his death, and and uh, the the book is unfinished, but there's an, a great deal of insights about reasoning of, of considerable value in there. So, and, and it, it 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 is the other piece of the work on meaning, right? On Paul's view, speakers reason, speakers and audiences reason, right? And then. The, you, and then the challenges you've got to be challenges you've got to be kidding me because it did I just uttered this sentence what reasoning did you do right it, you un, you under, you don't you understand straight away so in what so that's the, Paul's work on reasoning takes up that challenge right to develop a notion of reasoning 
that is in a large part reconstructive and after the fact, uh, and, and still exhibits the activity as a rational one. Yeah, one of the dominant themes in, in Paul Grice's work is, is to exhibit a lot of human activity as rational. Yeah, we, we were discussing this one time by Dick, Dick Grandy, Paul and myself, and Dick and I were raising criticisms about how do people reason. And, and <laughs> Paul, okay, Paul finally got quite exasperated. He says, but it must be rational. Right, uh, and which it, which it is, but it's a challenge to explain the sense in which that's true. And and it, I find that work uh, considerably valuable. My own work that I currently do in pragmatics is all focused on that question. But so so reasoning, meaning, and implicature are sort of you'd say that yeah. his his main. Well, uh, that that, and then if you think the the reasoning the reasoning topic then opens a whole host of topics, right? Because you will attribute people, you to describe reasoning abstractly, you want to attribute attitudes about propositions to people. So, so what are, so what are those, right? That, yeah. and, and the, and you have a, a host of like Davidsonian or Davidsonian inspired questions about what is action that Paul thought a great deal about. So, If you look at if you look at Paul from the inside, he was an extraordinarily systematic thinker. Right, there's a system there that Dick Grandy and our in Stanford Encyclopedia uh, of Philosophy article are trying to emphasize the, the systematic nature of Paul's thought. But it's not why it's not widely recognized, right? But you, it's a it's a, a body that is a body of thought that tries to give to tries to solve a variety. Of problems in a systematic way, right? Paul thought the only Paul thought the only way to be successful is to do that, right? Otherwise, there'll be a hole or a problem or difficulty yeah, yeah. that brings the structure down. Um, right. So, so you mentioned that he uh, <clears throat> that he, he sort of felt finished with his sort of a meaning project um, in the 60s, and that surprised me a little bit because I. I've oh. gotten the impression that he was, well, quite hesitant about sort of. Oh, oh, Paul, um, Paul, Paul hated commit. Paul, Paul, Paul's idea. I swear, I forgot this in my characterization. It's actually quite important. Paul thought we should hold philosophical problems at arm's length, right, and examine them, right. So, I, so if I wanted to ask Paul a question, I would say, well, how would you respond to someone that might suggest that? Right. <laughs> that, that was an okay way because you hold it and he still thought about it and as you can see in, in in studies in the ways of words there's a good deal about meaning he had he had, he had thought about it but the the underlying account of speaker meaning and and the ultimate approach to sentence meaning do not change much after the uh, 68 69 uh, the the one <clears throat> the one, the one thing that did change a little was Paul's attitude towards common knowledge, right? Which is, which is, Schiffer imports in the speaker meaning, which, I, and me too, by the way, I think that's absolutely right. Stephen Schiffer was another of my teachers, right? so, and uh, Paul remains skeptical of common knowledge. That, that uh, there but, is none. But you see that in meaning revisited. 
you'll see some of that issue come up. So he's, he was still, he was still, think, oh, clearly still thinking about it and has some, <clears throat> some new, new things to say about, right, or, re, or refine things to say about meaning and implicature and study is in the ways of words. But, but in terms of, you know, the major block of the theory is complete by 69. Right, right. So, so on his view, speaker meaning is a matter of a speaker having certain intentions uh, uh, to communicate a, a certain proposition uh, in a certain way. And, and there are shifts before that between meaning and the, the lectures in the logical conversation uh, lectures. But was, was he happy with, with an account of what exactly those intentions should uh, contain? By that point, uh, by '69, he did some he did some published work on. Uh, uh, there's the question: What's in it? What is it to intend? Yeah. And then, what is the content of the uh, intentions? And Paul and I differed on a, on on a couple of things. One was the usefulness of the notion of a proposition, and, and the other was the underlying account of <coughs> of speaker meaning. I mean, of sentence meaning. And so Paul's idea was that, propos- and this I agree, propositions are a theoretical posit that we need at the moment, right? It's what you call his ontological Marxism, that if they work, they exist. And, uh, and so he was, he was comfortable uh, with, he was comfortable with that. And uh, that's, uh, at the level at which the theory of meaning and implicature is laid out, I think that's probably that's probably fine. Even though we don't, if you if you ask me, well, what's how do what's the theory that on occasions of use it accurately associates the content of meaning with the with the with the utterance token? I don't think we have that. Right? We're just we're just using a stopgap measure, and that means things like. De re versus de dicto attributions. We're just we're we're just limping along best we can, right? So uh, and 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 means that since the whole theory depends upon the the attribution of beliefs and intentions, right, the the whole theory rests upon a theory of propositional attitudes and their content, which has not yet been given. I think Paul would agree with that. Uh, and then the question is, how do you develop that content? And you see in the 1968 Foundations of Language article, right? That's a turn. That's where there's an explicit turn away from the convention-based theories of sentence meaning of, of Lewis. And at the time, Stephen Schiffer, who is now also turned away from that. Uh, and uh, towards... You know, implicit and towards implicit rule following, and and Paul, I think, wanted more implicit rule following. You know, and Paul wanted to tie implicit rule following to our to our reasoning about sentences. I, I think that would be fair. If Paul were here, he would be shaking his head, claiming I never said that. It might be something I once considered, right? Uh, but you know, putting aside, since he isn't here, <laughs> putting aside that, right, just to paint with a very broad brush, uh, that 
that and I think that and that's just that's just to make a gesture towards a theory. We simply don't have that, right? At least in my view, we just don't. We just don't have that. We don't know. We we don't know theory of the quote syntax of natural languages if they have anything like a syntax like a formal language, and we have no picture of the semantics of natural language other than rough ideas, right? And and <clears throat> so that there's a there's a lack of explanation, I think. But there was this is 1968, 69, right? Implicit rule following was a very big topic and, and taken quite seriously. So as the as time has gone on, I I would imagine Paul would have moved away from it too. But there there are there are things to be done in 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 the uh, in the theory right about propositional content to the extent you think you can specify it in the absence of a, a more detailed neurophysiological theory or and about about rule following the connection between rule following and actual uh, and reasoning and actual utterance all that remains to be done Paul's might be Paul's great achievement one of his great achievements was to give us a a, a description of communication that then allows us to raise those questions right fruitfully in different areas. Okay, well, this part, right? This part, there's there's saying there's saying and implicating or meaning that's not saying, right? And then there's sentence meaning. How do they go together? What's the underlying theory of propositional attitudes? All that all that is yet to be answered. And and he worked on those things, right? The 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 account of reasoning and and the desire to give so much more detailed theory of mind, which was was occupying him a great deal when in, in the seventies. What were his sources of inspiration? So he he started his career in Oxford in the UK yes. and then moved to Berkeley later on. So so which well, other I mean, philosophers did ins inspired him? Well, or? I, I will I will answer that. Uh, quite uh, much more directly than this anecdote, but the anecdote does make a point. I was walking, I, I ran into Paul coming, walking across the campus and I, I was, I'd been, what I'd been working on reasoning in particular moral reasoning. And I asked Paul, so what, what is, what should you, can you suggest I should read about this? And he thought for a second and said, Aristotle has written a lot on this and walked on. <laughs> but that is not, he took great inspiration from Aristotle, which, which he read in the original Greek. So, uh, and uh, but Austin is you, you can't mention Austin in the ordinary language philosophy, right? That that's the world that he entered when he entered philosophy, and a lot his meaning and implicature work is a it can be thought of it was a reaction to Austin, right? They they. They had a Saturday morning discussion group every Saturday to discuss Austin Warnock Paul, right? A group of uh, the uh, group of philosophers to discuss, you know, to apply ordinary language to a variety of problems. That and that that was the period of the uh, causal theory perception paper because Paul and Paul in in his very counter-suggestible way wanted to defend sense wanted to defend sense datum theory against the critiques of Austin. And he thought, well, you know, look, it's not hard. You can say sense datum theorists can stop talking about the the 
stop using the thing, stop using like H.H. H. Price does in his book. I, I, there, when I see a tomato, there's much I can doubt. And then except for the little red, red bulgy thing, he said, this, it looks to me as if I see a tomato. And people would get the Austinian objection. That is not correct usage unless somebody is doubting. There's some reason to think somebody will doubt or deny the statement there is a tomato, right? He got, if I say, I got that objection all the time. That, and his response to that was the distinction between what you say and what you implicate, right? which has all worked out in the 1960s causal theory of perception paper. And so, that, but Paul, was, he was an ordinary language philosopher, a deep belief that, that he, that I still have to a considerable extent, that if you carefully reflect on language use, uh, <clears throat> then you can see the conceptual distinctions embedded in, in the shared conceptual scheme that lies behind our language use, right, that we use to communicate. And careful reflection on language will reveal that to you with careful attention to the distinction between what is said and what is implicated, right? Because Austin, Austin at that time identified meaning with the totality of correct uses, right? Which, so that, so that, so that's why it looks to me like so-and-so. If you look at the totality of correct uses, plausibly only correctly used in the doubt or denial condition, right? And uh, 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 Paul comes up with a much more sophisticated theory. Uh, uh, one of the great tragedies is Austin's death, that they didn't survive to, you know, to continue to react to uh, developments like Developments like well, but but you see, you look at studies in the way we're studying the way words begins with a defense of ordinary language philosophy, right? And and, and to some extent, rightly, right, rightly so. Uh, and uh, so that so he was very much steeped in that. And then and his other well, Strassen, Strassen, his student, right? He and Strassen were closely together, uh, and. Uh, and then, and then Strassen's student, Stephen Schiffer, who did his dissertation right on Grice's theory of meaning, was at Berkeley and he and Stephen worked together quite closely along with, with uh, in the Berkeley cases, Michael Freda and George Myra, right, were both uh, significant influences. And then later on after I left, Alan Code, the ancient, you know, the the philosopher uh, Aristotle, Plato, ancient philosopher, all considerable influences, and the milieu around Paul, with whom he just talked. Right. So uh, Grice left Oxford a, a few years after Austin died, right? Uh, yes. As when the, when Strassen became when Strassen became professor, but perhaps we can let that pass over. Did did that uh, influence his decision to move? So, so he felt overlooked, perhaps. Uh, I mean, he got, well, he got to Berkeley. I, I, this was before I knew Paul. This is 1967, but I heard the story. He gets to Berkeley. 1967, Berkeley is a site, right? It's uh, in the middle of the 60s, and it's Berkeley with the center of the counterculture. And Paul sits down on the sprawl steps. There's a big, the big registrars, the big uh, university guy. 
administrative building is Sproul Hall, which overlooks the main plaza, right, that ended at Telegraph Avenue. It has a, a set of cement steps. And Paul sits down on the steps, looks out, says, I am in heaven. I see. Oh, Paul, was a, Paul was a counterculture character himself. He kept, he kept his pants up with a rope and did his shopping at thrift stores. I see, but he was, he was by he was by design, right? Intellectually challenging and culturally challenging, right? But was there a falling out between him and Strawson? Uh, I, I only I, I don't have this I, I don't have this firsthand, but they worked very they worked very closely together, and they're and and, and they're. Some people, if you read the second half of individuals, it's certainly very, they work very closely and they work closely on that material. So, right. uh, uh, and I think uh, falling out would be too hard. I, I, the, the Austin, the Oxford part of Paul's life is, was just past. He had found a new intellectual home and was, a new intellectual and cultural home and was, 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 was moving was moving forward, yeah. But yeah, Strassen contributes to the volume Dick Grandy and I did uh, for Grice. Right. By the way, in case case you, nobody's ever noticed, the volume is called Philosophical uh, Grounds of Rationality and Tensions, Categories, and Ends. It spells P. Grice. <laughs> uh, let us put the name on because Festschrift don't sell well. <laughs> um. But I've heard a story about uh, Grice's famous meaning paper that it was actually Strawson who submitted that. Yes. Without Strawson Grice's sent knowledge. To the Phil review and didn't tell Paul that it was accepted. <laughs> and that's true. Yeah. yeah. As far as I know, that's as far as I know the truth because Paul would never send it off. Right, right. And and I assume that that relates to something you said earlier that he, he wanted to keep philosophy at arm's length and not be sort of committed to a position, but sort of examine it at arm's length. Was that yeah. also contributing to him not publishing more? Yeah, I never did understand that, and I never and and, and I never asked. I mean, clearly, he he didn't need to publish more. In fact, when when Dick Grandy and I did the, the festschrift for him, we have a list of Paul's unpublications. Right. The things circulated, right? Yeah. And uh, and I think he was quite quite ha- quite happy with that. It was a different world back then. I mean, the pressure to publish was but well, by contemporary standards, not there at all. No. And Paul and Paul didn't need to publish for the uh, for the uh, for the attention but uh, so and he just had a different there was a different conception of what i i think different conception of how what intellectual work looked like right he was happy he's working in a in a community of friends of shared values and his work was influencing people and yeah, that there's less motive to publish now. Now, you know, right? It's it's, not, it's 2022. It's like, my God, publish that. <laughs> yeah. 
So, so I assume that you've you read a fair amount of Grice's uh, unpublished work as well. Is there anything in particular you'd like to recommend, or it's something that you'd you'd like to have seen print, but but it never made it to print? We did go through everything. Uh, Judy Baker, Dick Grandy, and I, and try to publish everything that we thought ought to be uh, ought to be out. The there. And I think we I think we did a decent job of that. There is one project I never completed, probably not publishable. But he had he and Warnock had a, a, a number of discussions about the theory of perception. And I thought there are notes written up in Paul's almost indecipherable hand, and I thought those I mentioned it. Paul thought those were quite good. Paul was surprised that. I know they're, they're really, I think, quite good. But the transcription task proved, given the resources, I was sitting in a philosophy department with one shared secretary for everybody and Paul's indecipherable hand. And uh, so if those had been typed up and if my initial re, uh, impression was right, those, uh, those might have well should have seen the light of, should have seen the light of day. Paul's work on perception I really the some remarks some remarks in the senses which doesn't get much attention is really an excellent work. Yeah. yeah. He, he argues that you can only differentiate the senses if you refer to a, an exper distinct experiences with distinctive introspectable characteristics. And quite plausibly right. argues Right. right. Yeah. And that's also the paper which he tries he asks you to imagine putting a a peg that looks round through a through a hole that looks square. What what if, if you if you separate the correlation between sense between sight and touch. Right, right. Um, so I remember a few years ago I found some lecture notes um, in in Grice archive on um, the, the, the work on uh, science by uh, uh, Peirce, yeah. which I found quite helpful in understanding Grice because in his famous meaning paper as the distinction between natural and non-natural meaning, which seems to have roots in, in something like Yes, and he never, he never did much with that. I take it that the original idea, which you also see briefly at the beginning of the Foundations of Language paper was was a was a theory of natural signaling, right? Yeah, a more behavioristic or you know, uh, animal you know, uh, appropriate to animal behavior theory, and then you would build on that, adding in what you needed, right, to get to human communication. So so you would have a you would have a a sequence, not necessarily continuous, because there would be these additions, but but there would be a there would still be unity from from animal behavior with the addition on top of what then makes it characteristically human, and so you get you get more explanation that way. That was one of, that idea enormously attracted Paul of levels of theories, but nothing was made much of it in the in the in the in the papers, uh, and uh, well, in the science, we don't have the science to do it yet, right? If Paul and I differed on any point, it was on the extent to which philosophy can tackle those problems, right? My my 
my, I tend to distinguish rather sharply between problems where we lack the science to say anything really useful and, and, and problems we can answer in what also was dear to Paul's art, the conceptual analysis way, right? Reflecting on the ways we talk and think. I mean, we certainly can do that in philosophy. Yeah. And we can reflect upon develop scientific theories and what sense they mean and how they might be extended, but we're no, we don't have this. In the case of language use and in behavior, where theories are just developing. Hmm. Right. So, I, I, so in that way, Paul was much more ambitious than I was. This was an issue throughout the 70s and 80s. I see. But uh, concerning Grice's thoughts and, and insights, what what has been the sort of uh, what has influenced your own work the most, or what kind of ideas have you gotten from Grice that you you found the most useful? Uh, what clearly overwhelmingly influenced my work is pay attention to how we talk and think when you're when you're rolling out conceptual distinctions, right? Because boy, that. <laughs> boy, he, he was a, the eminent practitioner. Boy, was he right, right? Mm -hmm. you, you can talk a lot of nonsense if you're not careful, right? right? So, so I, 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 that throughout, throughout, right? I mean, I, instead of just thinking what looks like a plausible distinction, stop and uh, stop and reflect. I mean, can we? how does this tie into our actual talk and thought and is it reflected in there in some demonstrable way or am i just making something up right but uh three of us have we've been working on it for any number of years are, are writing a book on uh enjoyment and beauty and uh and uh the and boy does the advice do you need to heed the advice do you need to heed the advice there um and <clears throat> that, and of course the work uh, the work on that work and the work on the work on meaning the work on meaning speak, speaker meaning always stood out for me as a successful example of ordinary language conceptual analysis that and the work on reasoning yeah, yeah. Uh, and so people say yeah it can really be it was very important it can really be done yeah yeah it can really be done in a way that makes an important contribution uh, that and even in my in the work I do now, on, on just finished a book on on privacy, which which makes a good deal of you. So I mean, the actual the actual details are more tied to Stephen Schiffer since it involves you know common knowledge and coordination. Uh, but the but the uh, but the analytical. Uh, the careful carefulness, well, and a little carefulness derives from them both, right? I mean, they're, they're both enormously gifted in in different in different in some different realizations at that. And so, they, I, it, when I write, I have when I write, I have, I have Paul on one shoulder and Stephen on the other. A little intimidating, actually. <laughs> uh, and uh, so that's it. But um, but what? What I have departed from is, is the you know, are the more um, ex, the explanatory ambitions of the sort you were talking about the unified theory of animal behavior and and yeah. speaker meaning uh, 
scientifically, I just don't think we have the we have the we have the background yet for philosophy to use, usefully work on it. And I think it's a mistake. It's a waste of time to to try. Yeah. That was the one sharp one the one sharp argument I had with Paul. I started along this line one time. We were sitting out in the, in his back porch, uh, looking out in Berkeley, and and I started on uh, <clears throat> attacking the implicit reasoning idea along the lines I've just been talking. Right, and uh, Paul did not like that at all, not at all. The only sharp reply I ever got from him. And I started to say something. He says, I'm not finished. <laughs> I never brought up the topic again. Oh, nice. <laughs> I, I recently started but it reading. Was, yeah, but it, was, it was at the heart. But the, uh, talking about Paul, it's a heart, the heart of his view. De he deeply wanted to exhibit in detail how our language use was rational, right? And so we had implicit knowledge, but knowledge of right. these rules. And we, in some sense, followed without too, without too big a scare quote, those rules, right? And that would then be reflected in our actual or potential reasoning about them. And that was absolutely near and dear to his heart. And I attacked the foundation and was not well received. Right, right. and he, he wasn't really prepared to, to discuss that or? or uh... Oh, he just, he, yeah. Well, yeah, we we had a we had a long and and happy uh, a long and happy relationship. I may have found him in a bit of a mood about this. <laughs> I see. I see. Because I, I recently started reading Sylvan um, Chapman's biography on Grice, and in in one of the early chapters, he he uh, uh, notes something about Grice being quite stubborn in discussions. Uh, is that something you'd I agree with. Uh, no, I never found him stubborn. I found him uh, exceptionally skilled in defense. <laughs> but but to a point, right? I mean, to, a, to a point. I mean, it, he was gifted at making he was gifted at making distinctions, and he did not. And I did I did not pose my question properly, right? In the implicit reasoning thing. I just made the claim. I should have said, I think part of what annoyed him was I took the wrong stance. I should have said, you know, some people will raise this objection. <laughs> right. how, are going, how will you answer it? And yeah. that keeps appropriately at arm's length. So the people that find him stubborn, where they're ad, you know, I, I hang out with the lawyers too. They're advocating their right, where they're, they're advocating like lawyers do, right? And, and, that and uh, that's not proper philosophical behavior. Put it off at arm's length, right? Because look at Paul's articles. So they begin. There are five possible positions, right? Right, and he lists them now. Positions one and two have this problem. Positions three and four have this problem. Which that leaves us with five. Let us see what can be said in favor of five, right? Right. That, that is the and. Because that, he thought that's the only way forward if we're not just going to be playing, you know, like tennis, batting the ball back and forth. Right. And so, no, I never, no, never found him, never found, never found him stubborn. A little intimidating at times, but never stubborn. No, I see. Well, well he, he, not that the man was not. 
but that's not such a that that can be a virtue. Thanks so much for for talking to us today. Oh, thank you. Very much enjoyed. Really appreciate it.